10, he goes and he visits the temple. And in the temple was where we get this passage in John where these Greek people come to see Jesus. And what does Jesus do when these Greek people come to see him? He predicts his death. All right, so think about the picture. He rides into the city. He makes this intentional declaration that he is the king, that he is the Messiah by riding in on the colt, the foal of the donkey. The people are excited. The people are anxious to see what he's going to do, what this Messiah is going to do. Because remember, as we talked about last week, their expectation is, is he's going to restore them to their glory, which means they're going to rule over the world. He's going to throw off the Romans. And so they're, ex- they're, they're ex- thrilled to know what's going to happen. And what is, what's Jesus' first thing he does? He goes to the temple, and what's he tell them? I'm going to die. And they respond to this of, well, no, that's not how this is supposed to work. I mean, just utter confusion because this is not in their frame of mind. They don't get it. Um, so with the very intentional act... Jesus is communicating his kingship. He's doing this on purpose. So that's what we're talking about today on Palm Sunday, is Jesus proclaiming to the people that he is their king. He is the one they have been waiting for. And they don't understand it. They don't get it. They see the symbol. They understand what he's communicating. But they have no concept of what kind of king he's trying to be. You also get this passage, this is where you get the passage where the Pharisees tell Jesus to quiet the crowds. And Jesus, you know, that famous passage where he says, if I quiet them, then the very rocks are going to shout out. Why do they want him to quiet the crowds? What are they concerned about? Uh, Well, they're concerned that the people are going to be stirred up. Remember, it's Passover. They're expecting liberation. They're expecting God to act. They're shouting out, Hosanna, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord, he who comes with the son of David. And so the the Pharisees want them to quiet the crowds because they're worried that Jesus is going to start a revolution. And then the Romans are going to come in and take care of a revolution, which is what the Romans do. They're very good at that. So that's why they want the crowds to be quiet, because they're afraid of what the reaction is going to be if the crowds continue to stay stirred up. And so the Gospels tell us that after he comes into the temple, he leaves for the night. So he's staying out towards, uh, towards the Mount of Olives. He's not staying in the town every night during Holy Week. So he leaves. So you can go to the next slide, Tom. Um, Tom's back there playing with all this new stuff. So um, you all excuse any delays. All right, so on Monday, what does he do? Well, Monday he comes back into town. And the first thing he does is you get the, the famous st- the story where he curses the fig tree. And he, he, sees that it has, he says he's hungry and it sees that it has no fruit. And so he curses it and it withers. So why, uh, what's, this, what's the purpose of him cursing a fig tree? I mean, they even tell him, like, it's not the season for figs. It's not supposed to have figs, Jesus, and yet you curse it. It's a, it's a picture, and it's symbolizing uh, God's judgment upon the nation of Israel because the nation appears to be alive but is bearing no fruit. And so Jesus is giving a vivid picture here on the first day of Holy, or the second day of Holy Week that a big part of what he's doing is he's bringing judgment on the nation of Israel. Because the nation of Israel is not, as we talked about last week, doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is being a light to the world. And so he's judging it for not bearing fruit. And then he does, he, has, uh, he cleanses the temple. And so this is, we all know, again, this is a familiar passage. Do we know where it fits in the timeline? Here's where it fits. The second day of Holy Week, Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple. And through that action, what is he doing? He's directly challenging the Jewish religious leaders as being complicit with corruption. He's judging the temple. He's saying that you, my people, are not doing what you are supposed to be doing. 
You know, what's he say? You've made this a house of robbers, a den of thieves. You're not using the temple the way it's supposed to be used to, to worship. Um, and so he's judging them when he comes in on that Monday. And then he leaves and he goes back out. All right, so Tom, the next, next slide. Tuesday is the biggest day. It's the day we have the most about. So he comes back in. The disciples that morning on the way back in, they see the fig tree that he cursed, and it's withered. It's, it's now a dead fig tree, and it was alive the day before. And so he gives them an example because they're shocked. They say, how did this happen? And this is where Jesus tells them about if you have the proper amount of faith, you can move a mountain. All right? That's where that story comes from. And he's talking about, his, one, his ability and how they should trust in him and again, the idea is they should trust him, they should follow him, they should not trust the Jewish religious leaders. They should not follow them. And then he comes in and he gives all these famous teachings and parables that we all know so well. But the, the idea here is, is they're all very specific and intentional of what's going on and what Jesus is trying to communicate about who he is. And so we can see all of these. I don't know if it's big enough where y'all can actually see it. But the first, and it's Matthew and Mark basically track completely. Luke is almost very similar as well. John leaves all of this out. Uh, and the reason we think that is is because John is written about 30 years after these three gospel accounts. And so John knows that these three gospel accounts are already circulating. So John's trying to do different things in his gospel account. Um, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written pretty early. And so they're all similar in these stories. So the first thing... He walks back into the temple on Tuesday, the day before he had cleansed the temple. So the first thing happens when he walks back in is the religious leaders come up to him and they say, by whose authority do you do this? Right? Who are you to come in and cleanse the temple? Who are you to come in and say that we are corrupt? Who are you? And Jesus doesn't answer them because that's where he gives them the famous question of, well, you tell me, let me ask you a question. Was John the Baptist from God or was he not? And the people say, well, depending on, and the leaders worried about their power say, well, depending on how we answer this question, it's not going to go good for us either way. So we're going to say we don't know. And so Jesus says, well, fine, you're not willing to answer my question. I'm not going to be willing to answer your question. So we have that first challenge to his authority. Then Jesus gives three parables. The most famous one uh, is the parable of the tenants. And this is the, the parable where the man has a vineyard and he leaves and he sends servants back send servants back to the vineyard, and what are the, the, the tenants of the vineyard? They kill the servants. They kill several servants. And then the, man, the owner of the vineyard says, well, what I'll do is I'll send my son, because surely they won't do anything to my son when my son shows up to see what's going on in the vineyard. The son shows up, and what do they do? They kill his son. And what does it say at the end of that parable? I'm reading from Mark 12. It says, they took him, being the son, and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And then what does it say? And they, meaning the religious leaders, were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So these three parables all have to do with judgment on the religious leaders. And, you know, most of lots of the parables throughout the Gospels, you kind of read them and nobody knows what he's talking about, right? The disciples are always asking, what, what does this parable have to do? What are, what are we talking about here? Not this parable. It's pretty clear. All right? This is not a parable. I mean, you know, we can use this for our own day. 
the same time, this parable was very directed. And so is the parable of the wedding feast, and so is the parable of the two sons, that Jesus is judging the religious leaders. Then they give him this famous question about taxes. Right? Pay taxes to Caesar or not pay taxes? They're trying to trap him. Because they know if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, well, that's a sign of open revolt. Again, the Romans aren't going to be very happy if there's a, a leader saying, no, don't pay taxes that you owe to Caesar. Okay, That's going to get him in trouble with the Romans. But then if he says, no, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then that's going to get him in trouble with the people. Because what are the people expecting him to do? Throw off the Romans. We want revolt. We want revolution. And so they're trying to trap him. Right? He can't answer the question either way without upsetting somebody. Of course, what does Jesus do? Uh, um, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Right? So he answers the question, but not in a way that anybody's expecting. So again, they're challenged to his authority rules, or fails. Then the Sadducees come and question about the resurrection, because remember from last week, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So they try to trip him up. Then we have the greatest commandment, where the scribe comes again and tries to trick him and says, what is the greatest commandment? And that's where, you know, the, the famous, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this is all Tuesday. <laughs> All these stories that we know are all happening back to back to back to back as he is being challenged this last week of his life. Then you get this famous quotation from Psalm 110 where Jesus asked them a question. He says, how can the scribe say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And they have no answer. And then in Mark and in Matthew, you get these woes on the Pharisees where he pronounces these seven woes on the Pharisees. Again, bringing judgment on their religious leaders. Then he leaves the temple and he gives what's called known as the Olivet Discourses. And this is where he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, it's also a type for his second coming. Now, most of the time, most of us grew up in churches around here. When you read those passages, it's all about the second coming. It's all about the second coming. Well, it is about the second coming, but primarily it's about Jesus saying the temple in Jerusalem are going to be wiped out, which we know comes to pass in 70 A.D. And so Jesus is acting as a prophet, and he's prophesying judgment on God's people for not following God's ways in the same way that they had been judged in the Old Testament for not following God's ways. And so that's all on Tuesday. All right, Tom, next slide. We don't know much about what happened on Wednesday. Uh, Luke gives us kind of an illusion in those verses that he goes back to the temple and teaches again, but we don't have any kind of direct confrontations. All the gospel accounts, again, contain, um, during this time period, the, the Sanhedrin is plotting to kill Jesus. Now remember, John tells us that after he raised Lazarus from the dead, so before the triumphal entry, the Sanhedrin met and decided they needed to kill him. But they don't know how, on what grounds. And so that's what they're looking for here is we know we want to kill this man, but we got to come up with a reason to do it. You know, we just can't willy-nilly kill somebody, especially somebody that's this popular. So we got to have a reason. So they meet again on Wednesday, and they say, we got to do something about this guy. He's got to go. All right, so then Thursday comes. I'll go through this one quickly. We all know Thursday, but Thursday is when he gives preparation uh, about the upper room. Him and his disciples go. They ha they wash he washes their feet. They have the Lord's Supper. 
And look, look, at, look at John, Upper Room Discourses. Three, four, four, four chapters in the book of John take place immediately following the Lord's Supper. Four whole chapters in the gospel take place on that night. Um, Peter, he predicts Peter's denial, and then they leave Thursday, late, late, late Thursday night to go to Gethsemane for prayer. And this is when the disciples keep falling asleep while he's praying. All right, so next slide, Tom. Then we get Friday, and we know Friday well. So it starts early Friday morning while they're in Gethsemane. Judas betrays him. And then we have this informal hearing of the Sanhedrin with the high priest and the former high priest. Um, we're going to look at that in just a second. Then we have Peter's denial. And then after sunrise, the full Sanhedrin meets, and they condemn him for being blasphemous. So they have their reasons now. They send him to Pilate. Pilate questions Jesus, sends him to Herod. Herod questions Jesus, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate condemns him to death, the crucifixion, which occurs likely around noon. Um, so this stuff's happening pretty quickly. He dies likely around 3 o'clock, and then he's buried. All right, so I'm not gonna, we're not going to go through Saturday and Sunday because this is really about the week leading up to. Um, so let's, let's look briefly at why. So, Tom, go to the next slide. All right, so the acts that led to execution. He proclaimed himself king during the triumphal entry. And then when he cleansed the temple, he proclaimed authority over the temple. And he pronounced judgment upon it and the religious leaders. All right, so this is a book I got a lot of this from, if anybody's interested in it. It's called The Final Days of Jesus, and it walks through all of Holy Week. It's a great book to read during this week. So if anybody wants to look at this afterwards, um, I got it. But this quote, this quote comes from that book. It says, With this two acts, he set in motion a series of events that could result only either in his overthrow of the Romans and the current religious establishment or his death. That these two actions were the point of no return because he challenged both Rome in claiming to be king and the Jewish religious leaders by condemning them. So when he did those two acts on Sunday and Monday, basically the end was at hand. It was just a matter of what it was going to look like at that point, historically going forward. Okay? And so why? So at this trial, on early Friday morning when he goes before the high priest, this is, all, this is what the Jews needed to take him to Rome. He applies Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 to himself when he says, um, in verse 60 of Mark chapter 14, says, The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. When he puts these two quotes together from the Old Testament, in those two quotes, he's claiming to be the Son of God and he's claiming to be king. That's what those two passages refer to. So at this time, the Jews have what they need. All right? They have the religious reason to execute him, which is the blasphemy. And they have the political reason to take him to the Romans and have him executed, which is he's proclaiming to be king. So that's it. That's done. It's a done deal at that point. So, Tom, go to the next slide. These are their reasons for the execution. So for the Jewish leaders, they're afraid of losing power. This is the Gospel of John tells us this the most. They keep saying that if, if we continue to let him go, then all the people are going to follow him, which is the implication is what? Well, that means they're not going to follow us. We're not going to have any power. 
They're afraid legitimately that he's leading the people astray. This guy doesn't make any sense from what our expectations are. Our expectations are that the king is supposed to lead a revolt against the Romans and restore us to power. And yet this guy's saying that the temple's going to be destroyed, that we're going, you know, put away your swords, we're doing this through peace, we're gonna, I'm going to die. None of this makes any sense. And so all the people are being led astray by this person. He's a false prophet. We need to get rid of him. And then they want to execute him because he claims he's blasphemous by claiming to be the son of God. Now, you see this in John. They needed Rome to act because they weren't allowed to execute under Roman law. And we also see in, God, in John's gospel that they go so far as to declare allegiance to Caesar. That's how bad they want Jesus dead. And so what about the Romans? Well, Jesus made an open proclamation through the triumphal entry that he was king. Okay? Caesar doesn't like other kings. <laughs> That's not what Caesar's in the business of having. And so you know Pilate goes back and forth. If you're, you know, you're all familiar with the story, Pilate continually says, why am I going to kill this guy? For what reason am I, am I killing this guy? And you, why, So why does Pilate finally pull the trigger? Because he clearly doesn't want to do it. Now, not because Pilate's a good dude. Okay, he doesn't want to do it because he has he could care less about these Jewish leaders. He's not trying to make them happy. It's not what he's in the business of doing. So the fact that they want to bring in this guy and kill him, he doesn't care about anything about killing another Jew. He doesn't have any compunction about that. But it's, at the same time, he's not in the business of making them happy and doing what they want to do. He's not their lap dog. So he needs a reason. So what's his ultimate reason? John 19, it tells us. 19 verse 12, it says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And at that point, Pilate has no choice. Right? The Jewish leaders are saying, This guy's claiming to be king of the Jews. And if you're truly Caesar's friend, if Caesar is your only king, then you can't let this guy exist. And so Pilate has him executed. The crucifixion, again, is a stamp of Roman power and that Jesus is just one long in a long line of failed messiahs. All right? This is a good example for Rome the next time another messiah pops up. See what happened to this messiah. See what happened to this guy that claimed to be messiah. Probably not a good idea for you guys to go around claiming that you're the messiah, which is what they're ultimately going to do and which is ultimately why the temple is going to be destroyed and the city is going to be destroyed. So this is, this is what was going on. So the last slide, Tom, we'll be done. Jay needs me to finish early so we can get little kids in here and finish. So, so ultimately, this is what was happening. Jesus was telling the people to follow him, that he had the authority to interpret the law and to forgive sins. And basically, he ignored the temple and did not encourage revolution against Rome. And this is why that they thought he was leading the people astray. What Jesus was coming in and doing did not line up with what their expectations of a Messiah was. So again, they thought he was a false prophet. What was Jesus doing? He was claiming to be the true representative of the true people of God. And by doing that, he's saying the scribes, the high priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they were the ones leading the people astray. It was direct confrontation. Think about all your Old Testament prophets. What happened to them? <laughs> Think about Jeremiah. When he comes in and he prophesies against the religious leaders, what do they do? They try to kill him. They throw him in a well. <laughs> they leave him to die over and over and over again. Jesus is a prophet, right? prophet, priest, and king. He is proclaiming judgment against the leaders. But he's not only doing that. He's saying the Jewish religion 
the worship of God is not going to flow around the temple anymore. The temple doesn't matter anymore. It's not going to be about the law anymore. Which those were the two biggies, right? That's what the Jews were all about. The law and the temple. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not going to be about those things anymore. It's going to be about me. Well, they didn't hear that very well. <laughs> that didn't make any sense to them. So they said he's leading the people astray. Because he's saying now everything is going to be different. Because the Messiah that you've been waiting for has come. He's replaced the temple and his life and message will be vindicated when it's destroyed. So the prophecy he makes in those Olivet Discourses where he says the temple in Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. His message is vindicated when that happens. Just like the prophets of old. When they prophesied God's judgment, how'd they know they were real prophets? When the judgment came through. There's a reason the Jews went back and put Jeremiah in the Bible. <laughs> they didn't like him at the time. But then when they got exiled to Babylon, they realized, oh, we probably should have listened to that guy. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He's saying, my vindication is going to come. Well, it's going to come on Easter Sunday. But it's also going to come in 70 A.D. when the Romans come in and wipe the temple out. There hasn't been a temple ever since. And Jesus is saying that, yes, he's bringing salvation, but he's also bringing judgment upon those who do not follow him. So these are the historical reasons um, of why they hung him on a cross. They didn't hang him on a cross so he could save us from our sins. They hung him on a cross for the same reason that people today continue to reject him. They don't want to hear the message. His message does not line up with the message of the world. It never has, right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What in the world is that guy talking about? I mean, does that make any sense? And again, in their context, who were their enemies? The Romans. What's it? Sermon on the Mount. The Roman soldier comes and takes your tunic. What are you supposed to do? Give him your cloak too. If he makes you carry your ba his bag a mile, carry it another mile. What? None of it made any sense to them. And it doesn't make any sense to us either. Because his message is about servanthood. His message is about suffering. His message is not about power as we know power. What's his answer to Pilate? Pilate says, are you a king? And what does he say? My kingdom is not of this world. And he says the same thing to us day in and day out. If we are going to follow him, we have to take up our cross. A sign of death and a sign of suffering. And we don't like that. They didn't like that. We still don't. So this week, encourage everybody take this time this week on this intentional focus on the crucifixion and the resurrection go back and read the stories again go back and read it with this context go back and see that this is a real man in real history okay he's just as real as George Washington was real he's just as real as Alexander the Great was real and for some reason they hung him on a cross and yet, for some reason, three days later, all his followers said, we see him. He's back. He's alive. And for the next hundreds and thousands of years, those same followers have been willing to die. and have been willing to follow him. Why? Because it's historically true. It happened. We have good reason to believe. It is faith. But we have no reason to believe that it didn't actually happen. And if it did, I say this all the time this did actually happen 
then it has to change everything. It has to change everything. Let's pray. Jesus, open our eyes to you this morning. We cannot see without you. We cannot hear you without your spirit. So I pray that today as we come to worship, that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. That you would bring repentance and confession where they are needed. That you would bring hope and assurance and comfort where they are needed. During this week, remind us again of what we proclaim to be true. That the Son of God became man and that He dwelt among us. And that He went to the cross. That He was buried. But that the grave could not contain Him. Because through His death, He conquered sin and death and the devil. Give us faith. We ask these prayers in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.